Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on a bright day in a rather deserted city of Westminster in current times, as once again we put the topic of leadership under the spotlight. I'm Scott Chaloner and I'm joined on today's programme by Paul Handley. Paul is the CEO and strategy partner at Campfire Marketing, a fully integrated strategic marketing agency based in Cheltenham, Gloucestershire. Paul, welcome. Welcome to the programme and it's great to have you on the air with us today. It's great to be here. Fantastic, Paul. And thank you ever so much for taking the time to come on to the programme and speak with us. Certainly a nice day for it. Now, um, the purpose of this podcast series is to really gather together a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership as a whole. So what I'd like to understand first and foremost is what that word leader actually means to you. Well, to me, leadership is is about a culture. So leader is someone who can motivate people to want to be their very best, um, ideally against a shared vision and culture. Um, And I think uh, a culture where people feel invested in the outcome and feel part of something special and very importantly to me, where they're not afraid to try new things. And if we think about your own leadership style, Paul, how would you go about describing that? Well, my business, Campfire, was actually forged from a culture. Um, so we, we've even written our culture down in, in the Campfire way, we call it. So it's very values-based. Um, so my style for leadership fits with that, which uh, essentially it's not about me. Um, it's about setting the vision, direction, and the environment for the wider team to thrive. Uh, and again, about them not feeling inhibited. So uh, ultimately, as a style, I would say um, I'd like to be inclusive, uh, but also directional. Mm, that's um, incredibly um, interesting. And in terms of the current uh, climate um, as well, um, leadership really has been put to the test at the moment, isn't it, with the uh, COVID-19 pandemic and different business leaders having to really feel their way through this crisis. Um, how have you found yourself having to adapt to that approach from a leadership perspective to meet this current uh, period? Well, it's certainly a challenging time because a lot of leadership is about the interpersonal um, trust and belief and interactions with your team. So if you're stuck behind a screen a screen working in video conference software or down the phones, you lose that human touch. Um, so that really, it, it becomes quite integral to rely on your team uh, and to, to reforge the culture so that you're all in the situation together and you keep communication channels open. Um, and also, I think, uh, instilling that culture where everybody is prepared to have a go, uh, try new things. And if things don't work out, we as a team learn from it and evolve from there. So it, it, it's an evolutionary period, I think, for every organization in the country. It comes down to that word adapt, doesn't it? And that's another huge, um, important um, element of leadership, uh, not just, of course, in uh, times um, of change like this, but also in any walk of uh, life, really, because um, as leaders, we have to adapt our approach when it comes to things as simple as people management, don't we, which is another important element of leadership, because no one particular approach might necessarily work with every single personality. So adapting is really important and just more so now. Absolutely. Yeah, it's adapting, but it's also keeping channels open so people can feel that they can approach you no matter um, how trivial or how important the issue is. Because the other side of leadership to me is is the um, welfare of a team. And it can be quite isolated and quite lonely for some people working at home. And it's easy to forget that. Uh, It's also many people are trying to work at home with young kids. And again, it's easy to not appreciate the challenges that brings. So uh, I think being open and um, being acceptive of a, a fluid culture is very important. 
I think if you do show as well that sort of consideration for those around you, then it's far easier to take people with you, which is incredibly important um, as a leader as well. Because um, without a team of people around you, you're not necessarily leading anything as such. And it's about having people around you as well that can nurture the best out of you as their leader, as well as vice versa, as well as you getting the best out of them, isn't it? Well, I agree. I mean, I would actually be, um, I'm surprised that I'm in a position where I can say I'm incredibly proud of, of some of the work that we've done over the last month or so by comparison to what we normally do, because our, our standard on quality is absolutely still up there. Um, and that's because the teams have gelled together, found new ways, adapted, evolved, and the creativity and the level of work is, is second to none. So um, that's the culture that's doing that and the people that are stepping up. And what would you say have been some of the influences in your career which have led to you building that uh, culture, Paul? Is there anybody that you've perhaps looked up to uh, through your career, any experiences that have really made you go down that route? Um, I think everybody's had good and bad examples. Uh, Equally, I've learned as much from people that overly try to uh, manage from a dictatorial or or controlling way as I have about inspirational leaders. But there's one specific example stands out for me. Um, Over just over 25 years ago, I was relatively junior in a very large financial services company. And there was a big discussion going on at director level at the group. And my immediate director uh, asked me my views on, on what was being discussed. And bear in mind, I was quite junior. Um, and I said exactly what I thought. And he looked at me, paused for probably three or four minutes and said, exactly. I agree that exactly with what you're saying now. I want you to be me. I want you to go to that meeting. And I want you to constructively say exactly what you've just said to me to try and prevent this from happening. And he sent me off on my way. Um, 25 years ago, so I would have been probably in my late 20s. Um, And I did. I passionately and constructively argued, and that decision didn't happen. Um, It it was overturned. And the effect of that on my self-confidence and self-belief was absolutely inspirational. That was probably my turning point, because I suddenly realized that my views are valid. Um, So, yeah, that's probably what I've learned from. And if there's one thing I, I... hold dear in my current culture it's the fact that I still try and do that with the next generation because that self-belief and that understanding that everybody has got a valid opinion if they can constructively put it forward is uh, I think that's leadership and it's giving the people the confidence of course to speak out in that way as well and I think encouraging them to really push the boundaries and go beyond their comfort zone is hugely important in one's development not just of course as employees but also um, as leaders as well and I think in a way, the experience of almost crisis management, if you will, that's coming about as a result of this current period, we're also finding that that's um, got some positives to be taken from it as well in how we're being developed and again pushed out of our comfort zones, isn't there? Well, it, it's interesting. I'm seeing, I, I work a lot with the um, charity sector and I'm seeing uh, the sector polarised. You know, you are seeing organisations or individuals that externally you may not have perceived as as true leaders, absolutely emerging, um, coming out of this looking very strong with clear direction, uh, innovating, evolving and adapting. And adversely, some organizations that you thought uh, would have worked that way are putting their head in the sand. So I think right now is a defining moment for individuals, for leaders and for organizations. And, and we're, seeing, we're seeing those people step up. 
Mm, we certainly are, absolutely. They do say, don't they, that um, when we go through times of adversity, when the chips are down, um, as it were, it does really bring out the best in people. And I can imagine that's almost been the case uh, for yourselves um, as well. Um, people really have um, sort of uh, got their heads down and plugged in because of that positive culture that you've developed there, Paul. Well, it is. I, I can't I can't take all the credit for that because a culture is not something that you can impose. A culture is something you can engender. Um, we're fortunate we, we try and hire um, people with drive and I would take attitude and ambition and drive over experience any day because people can learn how to approach a job but if they've got the right characteristics um, that's what's important and I think what we're seeing now is the benefits of that coming through and people are stepping up and people are um, keeping their, their personal drive and sharing it with others And do you think that people like that so good leaders perhaps are born as good leaders, um, given what you just said there, Paul? Or do you think it is something that you can learn? Because some things, I think, do have to come from within. So that sort of motivation, that drive that you talked about there. But skills are something that certainly you can develop as well, as you've said. Well, that's a very deep question um, because there are aspects uh, such as charisma, which are important. But I I think um, many people that don't see themselves as leaders have got potential to be leaders. Um, part of the challenge is I think too many organizations or individuals try too hard to manage um, and don't give necessarily enough trust um, or empowerment to those around them. Um, and I think if, if you go back to my original definition and think of leadership as engendering a culture, I think absolutely that is the key. And a lot of people, uh, if they think you know, honestly with themselves, are in a position to help steer or engender a culture. So, yes, I think yeah, it's, it's something that people can learn. And if you were to actually give some advice to somebody who was about to start their first day in a leadership role, based upon all of your collective experience, Paul, what advice would you have to uh, give them? My advice would don't try too hard to be liked, um, but try and create a culture and an atmosphere that they individually would want to have been in. Um, so create an atmosphere where you feel you can get the best out of those around you rather than an atmosphere where those around you are reliant upon you. Um, and that, if you work to those that as a process, I think you'll find the organization itself takes on its own life. Um, otherwise, you'll end up being very reliant. Uh, the organization will be very reliant on you uh, and you won't be able to grow in, in that model. So it's about it's about trust. It certainly is about trust. and. If we continue to focus on the future as well, uh, Paul, before we do wrap things up on the uh, the programme today, do give me an idea of what you envision the next 12 months holding for yourself and for Campfire Marketing as we move through the COVID-19 pandemic, but also for what you see for beyond that when we begin to emerge from this current situation as well. Well, that is a question that would have been a lot easier to answer four months ago. Um, my The sector we operate largely in is evolving, and it will look very differently in 12 months. And I think, therefore, my organization may well look different in 12 months. Um, and what I mean by that, and this is the positive side of it, is there's an awful lot of innovation um, happening in a very accelerated atmosphere now. And that's new products, new propositions, new routes to market. Uh, and we're helping the more um, proactive organizations do that. So what I would envisage is I think uh, the sector, our sector will look very different in 12 months. And I think the, the true innovators will be thriving. 
um, I do think there's a, there'll be a rebirth and a, a rethinking of how the sector approaches engaging with the public. And I'd be very proud to be a key part of that. Mm, and I think it would be fantastic once that rebirth starts to shape, take shape, Paul, to um, actually have you back on the programme just to discuss what Campfire Marketing is doing in that respect and maybe also address some of the new initiatives that you might be involved in at that time as well. Um, it's a shame that well, we are um, just about out of timer today, um, but I would, of course, love to uh, discuss that in future, absolutely. I'd be delighted to come back in the future. If, if you wish to have me back, I'd love to give you an update. Yes, um, and thank you ever so much for your time today, um, in any case, uh, Paul. It's been a hugely informative, but also really enjoyable experience having you on uh, the programme. And thank you ever so much um, for also agreeing to take the time to speak to me for the benefit of the listeners as well, uh, more than anything. And take care and stay safe with everything still going on in the meantime, for sure. Okay, thank you very much. That was Paul Handley, CEO and strategy partner at Campfire Marketing. Coming up next on the programme today, I will be handing over to Matthew O'Neill for his exclusive interview with Lord Blunkett. Um, Lord Blunkett is an active member of the House of Lords, a former Labour MP and Secretary of State, and also the chairman of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland. Despite being blind from birth, Lord Blunkett rose to prominence to become one of the most notable politicians of his generation, having held a number of senior positions in the cabinet of Tony Blair and having served as the MP for his Sheffield, Brightside and Hillsborough constituency for 28 years. He was first elevated to the House of Lords in August 2015, anointed Baron Blunkett of Brightside and Hillsborough. And I hope you enjoy listening just as much as Matthew enjoyed speaking with him. That's coming up next. Lord Blunkett, welcome. Thank you very much. It's very good to be with you. Um, well, of course, uh, nothing is being said uh, at the moment other than COVID-19, uh, which uh, we must touch on. Um, what would your message be to small businesses who are trying to keep going? Well, I think the last ones standing will be the ones that thrive when we get back to some sort of normality. So it's have confidence and courage. Obviously, take advantage as far as you can of the government help. I think that Rishi Sunak, the Chancellor, has gone about as far as you could have expected Mm -hmm. in the circumstances. There are obviously small businesses that fall between the cracks. Those who uh, don't have um, defined premises, can't benefit from the business rate waiver, uh, have not really been able to demonstrate that they can uh, adhere to the PAYE for furloughing staff and, of course, whether they can receive the the grant, 10000 or 25000 all, all of those who can uh, are obviously able at least to benefit from that for the time being and look to the future. But I think the second thing to say, and they don't need me to tell them this as a politician who, who did once do a business studies qualification, which is that it will be a different world. And being able mm. to think about how that world will look in a year's time and be creative about it and learn from not just what's happening to you at this moment in time, but to others around you and the sector that you're working in, that will be really important. Do you feel that the long-term effects of uh, the COVID-19 outbreak uh, will in some ways be positive uh, for British industry? Well, only in the sense that people are having to be creative. They're having to adjust and innovate. Therefore, they're thinking about more productive, if you like, greater productivity ways 
of delivering the same service or delivering the same products. And in that sense, I think we'll have temporarily at least very much higher unemployment than we've become used to, but we'll probably have a burst of productivity, Mm -hmm. which will help with the recovery. Whether it will help with the inequity of the way in which our economy is imbalanced, both between services and productivity and and, uh, production of goods and services, I'm not sure. What we will need to try and do is to ensure that the geographic imbalance that exists is, as far as humanly possible, is dealt with by both Uh, the entrepreneurship and innovation from the bottom up and targeted government help, which will still be needed. And we are now in the throes of the kind of borrowing that we saw back in 2008 to save the banking and economic system. We're we're having to do that to save the whole of our productive business and Mm -hmm. commerce. And I think that will have to be sustained for some time. Do you feel that people will take a second look at global supply chains in the wake of this outbreak? I think there's going to be much more creative ways of using local supply and linking up inside sectors much more effectively. And I hope that the Leaders' Council will be able to play a part in that in the sense that people who Mm. have something in common, a synergy in terms of what they're delivering, whether it's a service or whether it's manufacturing or whatever, uh, will be able to see that there's a, a, a good outcome from n- knowing the sector better, linking with people, not just geographically locally, but those in this country who may not have been on the radar in terms of what they produced for the supply chain. And, of course, um, ensuring, because there's quite a lot of fraud going on as we speak with um, people getting into cyber attacks, that they'll also take account of going into the the cybersecurity side effectively as well. The more we are online, the more people who are working from home, the more vulnerable those businesses and their supply chain become. And that's something to think about as well. How important is strong leadership at the moment? Well, I actually think that it's brought to the fore leadership in a whole range of areas from Obviously, government itself, and there's been ups and downs with the Prime Minister's uh, severe illness, but all the way through the public and private sector, people have, to use the jargon, stepped up. And they've shown uh, local, regional, national level the kind of leadership that Britain historically was very good at. Regrettably, we've not seen the same on the international scene for Mm. all kinds of reasons, Uh, but maybe we will in future. So I think out of this will come experience of people who have seen an opportunity to do good as well as seen an opportunity to provide a good uh, service or goods, uh, including, for instance, shortages uh, for the health and social care Uh, system, um, the food chain and the like, Uh, but also I think in terms of seeing the the synergy between the private and the voluntary sector and using people's uh, commitment to each other in a very positive way. I'm not sentimental about this. Things will revert, Mm -hmm. but actually I think there's a, a kind of moment of moral judgment of people feeling that they've got a role to play outside 
the immediate survival that they're engaged in. And if we can hang on to a little bit of that social responsibility, that will be a very positive outcome. Absolutely. Now, what's your broad view of how the government is responding to this? Are you broadly supportive of their measures? Well, it may surprise people to hear that that I have been very supportive. Of course, there's been legitimate criticisms about the speed of response on protective equipment and on issues relating to testing. But my own view is very similar to the challenge that was made to the Prime Minister of Italy when people said, why didn't you close Italy down faster? And he said, a fortnight before we did it, I would have been considered to be a madman and nobody would have agreed to do it Mm. if I'd tried to move too quickly. And I I think that's something that we need to reflect on here in the UK. We we may have seen the signals elsewhere uh, across the world and taken them more seriously at the time. Hindsight is a wonderful thing. But as someone who's uh, had his life in uh, the opposite uh, political party to the, the present government, I think that with some hiccups and mistakes, they've not done a bad job in what has been incredibly difficult circumstances. And you're absolutely right. In a in a liberal uh, democracy that we live in, it's it's very difficult for people to swallow orders given to them from government. Um, Well, the the UK and um, and the US, and to some extent the Scandinavian countries have a very different interest, uh, history and, and therefore interest in maintaining the freedom to decide and the persuasion and consent mm. that's required. Uh, those countries that have experienced one way or another totalitarianism over the last century have a slightly different way of coming at this. Mm. I don't want to exaggerate it, but I think that that's why getting the balance right of getting people to go along with what you want them to do in their interests as well as the nation as a whole is a sensible proportional balance. And I think we now need to adjust to the coming out of the crisis gradually, uh, readjusting to recovery uh, in the same way. Now, something you've mentioned recently on this balance is uh, the police overreach and the enforcement of the COVID-19 uh, structures that have been put in place. What have they done right, and where have they gone too far? Well, I think that they were interpreting what was not necessarily as clear yeah. advice as it might have been for all kinds of reasons, because people were feeling their way. I think what's come out of it has been uh, a demonstration by local police services in some parts of the country that they could get people to do what was needed without the heavy hand of drones overhead mm. or people being told that they you know, shouldn't be walking in the street because this was all about self-isolation, not incarceration. It was about getting people not to pass the infection on to each other and therefore to provide distance rather than to make our lives a misery. Those police services that adopted that policing by consent and chipping people along did really well. Those who went over the top, I think, soon got a very substantial pushback. And one of the strengths of our democracy is that you could have that debate. People could say, I'm terribly sorry, we we think the police force in our area has gone over the top. And that in itself is a constraint and uh, a readjustment. That's another strength of um, living in a country where you can have opinions and express them without actually being thought to be a fool. 
Now, of course, uh, the government has faced criticism uh, that they were slow to react, uh, and Boris Johnson wasn't present at the early COVID-19 COBRA meetings. Now, uh, Number 10 has claimed that this is normal practice. Uh, the health secretary often chairs COBRA meetings uh, related to health. Uh, does this tally with your experience as a secretary of state, or would you have expected the PM uh, to be more hands-on during the initial stages? I think different prime ministers do have a very different style. And Boris's style, which I think will now be considerably adjusted, was very swashbuckling. In some senses, delegating is a good thing, uh, as every leader of every business or public service knows. Those who try to pull too much into themselves end up with a massive bottleneck, a great uh, failure of trust and the inability of people to show what they're worth and to, to demonstrate their capability. So I, I, I'd be very wary of jumping in and saying he was wrong to delegate the essential COBRA meetings. What I was surprised about was that he didn't um, chair the first couple because mm -hmm. my experience with Tony Blair for the eight years I was in cabinet was that Tony was a great delegator, but he would get a grip to begin with watch what the difficulties were, and then give people direction and confidence to be able to get on with it. So looking back, I think Boris himself probably thinks, God, I wish I'd spotted the signals from elsewhere in the world more rapidly, and I'd just been there. However, this also raises another issue. All of us in positions of leadership need good teams around us. Mm -hmm. I think after this is over, he will be assessing those who really did step up and those who demonstrated their inadequacy, I think we'll probably end up in a year's time with a much stronger cabinet than we have today. Well, absolutely. And of course, uh, we've seen a, a significant uh, drop in the visibility of uh, certain special advisors like Dominic Cummings uh, during this uh, entire period. So it'd be interesting to see how that pans out. Um, well, yeah. it's certainly readjusted the role of those behind the scenes with those who should be taking the decisions having received advice. Obviously, there's been a complete transformation in the profile of experts, if I might use that term, who'd previously been denigrated. Mm -hmm. Scientists, medics, people with behavioral science uh, understanding. My only criticism was, were we getting wide enough advice? Were we narrowing it too much to a couple of key centers in London? But that's because I've always been adverse to everything being London-centric. I think there's great expertise, wisdom, experience out in the sticks, and uh, we should use it. Uh, rightly so. Um, now, was part, pandemic planning part of your time as a minister, particularly perhaps uh, when you were Home Secretary? Well, it was, but it was on the back of risk arising out of counter-terrorism measures. Right. Uh, I was the Home Secretary for three months when the attack took place in September 2001 on the World Trade Center and beyond. But we did an enormous amount of uh, scenario planning, both desktop and, and real. On the back of that, it was very heavily orientated to future developing terrorism risk. I certainly got involved with talking about pandemics. I remember being at a seminar in Edinburgh where the university there had done a lot of work itself on the issue of pandemics. And, of course, we, we saw SARS and other things emerging. 
I, I think it would. People criticised the government for not picking up the report from 2015, five years ago. I think that what happens is human nature kicks in. You deal with what you're immediately faced with. Mm. You you can you can sponsor reports. And this is true of business planning, of course, as well, and scenario planning for what business continuity will look like, recovery plans for business, what will happen if um, there's a cyber attack, what happens if there's an energy shutdown. These kind of things you you can look at, but you're immediately turning your eyes to what's in front of you. And had we picked up a bit more on the danger from Ebola and SARS and what have you in the past, then we might have said, what if something hits us in the developed nations that we don't have a vaccine for, Mm -hmm. that we can't immediately whisk up uh, protective materials or equipment or, for that matter, medicines that help with recovery, all of which we now see are a danger. I think this will make an enormous difference to the planning for for the years ahead. I hope it will be widened so that we don't just look at what's happened, because very rarely do you see something exactly repeat itself some of the circumstances will be, but others won't. So that's why I've put emphasis in what I talk about on looking at the other virus, the cyber attack uh, scenario, mm-hmm. which could be just as dangerous in a, uh, a world of just-in-time provision. One of the miracles of uh, the modern developed world, except for the very poor, has been the distribution of food. A lot of it on computerized, uh, technologically advanced systems, if that were to come down, we'd be in real trouble. So I think we need to think those sort of scenarios as well. So have a full plan across uh, both sectors, uh, biological warfare, pandemics, and uh, cyber warfare. Yes, and to do so on different levels, I think, again, thinking of thinking global but acting local, we Mm. need a lot more to think about what would happen if something took shape that actually broke down those national and global chains and how we would cope. And without, uh, obviously we've got enough fear and anxiety to last a lifetime without creating even more anxiety, we can think about those things for the future in a more rational way, I think. Now, aside from the physical uh, threat of the virus, one of the things that people are vastly worried about is the effect on uh, the economy, not just national economy, but also the world economy. Um, Now, it it has been said by certain parties, um, and uh, I'd like to garner your uh, thoughts on this. Is there a danger of the effects of the lockdown being even worse than those of the virus? Were it be prolonged, I fear that that balance would tip the other way. It is about proportionality. It is about balance. It's the wisdom of Solomon, really, to to get the moment right when you start to move and then to move quickly. There's no doubt whatsoever that we are stocking up, not just on the economic and employment front, which will be devastating enough, but on the health and social well-being front, enormous challenges and they will need careful handling because there's a lot of people whose lives 
for a variety of reasons, are at risk in the future on a scale that we've been dealing with over the, the immediate handling of the pandemic, concentrating really hard on those affected by COVID-19, those sadly who have died or been seriously incapacitated, that will roll over into the economic, the social, the mental health and cultural well-being of the nation. And that will need all of us to pull together as well. Absolutely. Now, do you believe the government's doing enough for business? I think that the speed of reaction once the scale of the pandemic was clear was very good. I've praised Ricky Sunak for his action. Uh, remember, a chancellor who only just come into office was planning to deliver the budget in the middle of March and has had three, at least three equivalent budgets since. I think he's handled it very well, understandably worried now about what we're doing to our economy. The level of borrowing is sustainable because of low interest rates, but it reaches a point, of course, where it tips over so that you can't then do the kind of structural investment requirements that the government were laying out before and in the March budget. And those will have their consequences as well as a planned payback over many years. I think we've learned something over the last few months. We, we needed to take immediate action. We don't want another round of austerity equivalent from 2010 through to 2019. I don't think the nation, on the back of what's happened and the challenges we have, could take that. And therefore, we need a different plan, economic plan, over a much longer period, just as we did from the Second World War all the way through to 2002, when the final American loans were paid off. Now, of course, uh, one thing that's on everyone's lips, um, how much longer do you believe uh, that the lockdown can go on for? I believe that we need to be substantially back in action as an economy in June. This obviously is layered in terms of places where people would meet in large numbers, having to uh, adjust to the fact that it will be longer for them. And sadly, that will involve business closures. It's why the Chancellor extended the furlough scheme to the end of June. Mm-hmm. But unless we, we get things moving in June, I think we'll run into the summer where all kinds of services and industries will have a chain reaction effect. And what happens with one will then have a major impact on another. And then you get the skittle effect where things get knocked down that you hadn't perceived were going to be affected. So I very much, if I were in government, and I always think of things in that context, what would I do if I were in government? I would be on the side from... The second week in May, on the side of the Hawks, in terms of saying we've got to start moving and we've got to do so with the collaboration and cooperation of the public who have got the message, who did behave, who responded magnificently. Let's try and get back, perhaps, you know, doing things differently for a time, but substantially getting back to business as usual. Unless we do that, then those areas that can't and wouldn't expect to be back in action immediately 
get pushed further into the middle of the year and the autumn, and then they become unsustainable. Now, of course, um, one of the other major developments we've had recently are the changes in the uh, the Labour Party. So if we could just uh, speak on the Labour Party for uh, a while. Um, this might sound like uh, an obvious question, but uh, how does uh, Secure uh, differ from Mr Corbyn? Well, I'm biased because I believe the Labour Party um, has come out of four and a half years of a black hole of a nightmare mm. uh, where it neither represented a, a, a credible opposition nor a, an electable government and the combination was to let those who supported the Labour Party and needed some of its policies uh, let them down very badly. Sir Keir Starmer both is a highly intelligent uh, professional lawyer who as Director of Public Prosecutions led the service well uh, had to take difficult decisions at a time of austerity, understands the world beyond Labour members, but has been able to do business with those who originally supported Jeremy Corbyn mm-hmm. and was able to command support from them. His creation of a balanced shadow ministerial team has been very encouraging. Um, I supported Lisa Nandy, who he's made Shadow Foreign Secretary, because I thought she understood the north of England and uh, the the disaffected uh, former Labour voters. But I believe that Sakir has taken on board those who have something really sensible to offer. And I believe he will be both a, a great leader of the opposition more importantly, will then present himself as a credible alternative prime minister. And all governments need an alternative government at their shoulder. Mm. Uh, it was true of us from '97, and it took the Conservatives some time to recover and to get to that position, but they did, and the Labour Party will, and that's crucial for our democracy. All of us need to understand and appreciate that a living, breathing functioning democracy requires uh, a credible, confident, and uh, in many ways uh, supportable opposition, as well as a government that we clearly want to do well, because none of us want, as we didn't with the COVID crisis, none of us want the government to fail. We want to see our economy recover. We want our social well-being to be taken into account. We want to overcome deep-seated inequality and poverty, and we want to do it with enterprise and entrepreneurship and business playing their role, and that is about leadership nationally, locally, in the private and the public sector, people with ideas, with confidence, with the ability to pull teams around them, above all, to have some idea of what it is they want to achieve and a very good idea as to how to achieve it. Now, of course, one of the biggest problems Secure is facing will be tackling the party's anti-Semitism problem. Uh, There has been a recent internal report that has been quite damning. Uh, What's your response uh, to that report, and what does Secure need to do in response? Well, there are two reports. One which is being produced by the Quality and Human Rights Commission, uh, which he will, and has already indicated, will implement in full. The second was a leaked report put together by the supporters of Jeremy Corbyn, 800 pages of 
private uh, interchanges on social media, which he has, uh, Keir Starmer set up an investigation to identify uh, who did it, who leaked it, what the content was, does it have any salience and lessons for us, and where necessary action will be taken. So I hope that as he moved very quickly to reassure the Jewish community, so he will be able to take the necessary steps to back up that reassurance with the kind of actions that says that this was a blight on a historic great political party that all of us, all of us were ashamed of. We've been able to put that behind us and to move on to facing the future with confidence. What's the one king, uh, key thing that Sakir needs to do to restore Labour as an election-winning party? I think Sakir Starmer's major challenge is to convince sceptical voters that Labour has not only reverted to a party that they can support because they can see it acting, developing, presenting as a credible alternative government, mm -hmm. but also that the lessons have been learned from the fiasco from 2015 onwards. In other words, there have to be very clear signals of substantial change, not just the right words, not just reassurance that we're not uh, going back to some of the crazier uh, policies, but actually that we've understood why the electorate rejected those policies so substantially in December 2019. If people get that message, they'll understand that the Labour Party has changed, as it did in the 1980s and early 90s, to become the electable government with the greatest majority and historic majority, even greater than 1945, which I was privileged to be able to take advantage of in 1997 when I joined the Cabinet. Now, I know what your answer is going to be to this question, but uh, indulge me. Um, do you think Sakir has what it takes to be PM? Yes, I do. I think he has the background, he has the experience, he has the professionalism, he has the forensic uh, mindset, and he has the confidence to have put a team around him which will ensure that it will work. And those elements are true of all leaders. Ideas, ability to build a team, to have confidence in that team, uh, and to be able to demonstrate leadership in practice, sometimes at the most difficult times. And, you know, the Leaders' Council, those sharing their thoughts with uh, um, the kind of thing that we're doing now uh, with uh, a podcast, but also joining us in linking up in that network of people who can support and help each other and learn from mm -hmm. each other, that is what needs to be done in politics as it needs to be done in business. Thank well, you very much indeed, Matthew. Well, really thank you for coming on the, uh, the program. It's been a, an absolute pleasure, and I look forward to speaking with you again. Thank you very much, and good luck to all those listening in what has been a nightmare scenario. Good luck for the future. Have courage have confidence, and yes, listen to those who know more about business than I ever will. Thank you, Lord Plunkett. Thank you.
This has been the Leaders' Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.